Yeah, where are we on the on the Marlins um, timetable of like every certain amount of years just have this amazing team out of the blue and then, <laughs> and then it, it win a World Series and then immediately <laughs> yeah. destroy it? Yeah, they'll win the 2024 World Series. It's pretty much guaranteed. All right. You heard it here first. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is March 12th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil, how's hey, it going? Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm well. You just got back from a spring training trip, I didn't you? I did, I did. I'm sunburned. It's great. I saw baseball. Life is good. How many games did you see? Three in three days. Wow. It was wonderful, yeah. And on the line with us from Los Angeles, we're also joined by 538 Sports Editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Hey, Sarah, how are you? Good, really good. So longtime 538 readers and listeners may remember the name Hot Takedown, which was a previous podcast. Neil was a veteran of that podcast. I was. <laughs> so if you're a former listener, welcome back. We're, we're so glad to have you. And if you're new to our podcast, we hope you like what you hear. On today's show... We'll talk about Antonio Brown's imminent trade to the Oakland Raiders and what it tells us about how much power NFL players have these days. We'll look at MLB teams that aren't tanking and whether it's worth trying to win when your closest competitors are trying to do the same. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. So we'll start off with Antonio Brown. After initial reports last week had him shipping off to Buffalo, he will actually be traded to Oakland, ending months of drama in Pittsburgh. The Steelers will get just two draft picks in exchange for one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. Here's Skip Bayless talking about Brown on Skip and Shannon Undisputed. I think the Steelers will be better next year without Antonio Brown. I think this was addition by subtraction, but at least they had the guts to say, we can't do this anymore. So, Jeff, how much will Pittsburgh miss Brown? I mean, the thing with Pittsburgh that's kind of funny is that, you know, if there's one reason they were winning, it was their passing offense. You know, like, you look at, like, when they lost to the Jaguars in the divisional two years ago, they scored 42 points and lost to the Jags. They lost to Blake Bortles. I mean, the problem, I think, was never what Roethlisberger and Brown and and Bell were doing. I mean, if anything, the problem with those guys was keeping them all on the field, particularly Bell at the same time. I mean, you saw, like, key playoff games where, you know, Fitzgerald Toussaint is starting in in a key game. So, like, they did have an attendance problem, but when those three were on the field together, I mean, it was was awesome, and and you knew you were going to get points. I think it's a shame for them that they never were able to translate that into, you know, even a Super Bowl appearance. I think Roethlisberger's a big piece of that. So can someone else come in there? Can Juju Schuster do some of the same things? It wouldn't surprise me at all. So I, I don't think they got better by losing Brown, but, um, you know, I, I do think what he had in there with Roethlisberger is replaceable. And Juju Smith-Schuster, I mean, he had come on as a, a pretty strong alternative to Brown. Well, he actually led the team in uh, receiving yards mm-hmm. and yards per game, so it wasn't even an artifact of Brown missing that last game. Right, right. Although Brown still led the league in receiving touchdowns, so you'd think that they would miss that 
at least a little bit? Yeah, I mean, they were also uh, sixth in scoring this season and only 16th uh, in, in points allowed. So it does seem like, you know, the Steelers are a team that are kind of, they've been eroding the talent base that they've had since like the, they made the Super Bowl uh, around Roethlisberger for a few years now. And so um, that was really, you know, 10 years ago mm-hmm. almost. Um, and so this just seems like more of that. I, I don't see how the locker room concerns uh, about Antonio Brown, which I, I'm sort of, I don't know where you guys come down on this, but I always tend to think those things are sort of overblown. The mm-hmm. team chemistry, team chemistry happens when you win, not right. the other way around. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and so, you know, whatever gain they might get from uh, from being rid of Antonio Brown's antics. And by the way, he is re- widely regarded as one of the hardest working players in the NFL in terms of, you know, his own craft of, of playing receiver, too. So I don't know. I think um, that, that it's not going to be addition by subtraction, like he said. It's kind of funny also when a receiver is accused of being a diva. It's like, have you met a wide receiver in the right. NFL? I mean, I mean, there's one school of thought that Julio Jones in Atlanta is not a diva enough. That's right, yeah. And that he should be on the sidelines screaming at Matt Ryan to throw him the ball in the red zone like an Antonio Brown would be doing or a, you know, mm-hmm. Terrell Owens-style receiver would be doing or a Des Bryant. Um, and that maybe that would somehow help the Falcons. It would help, you right. know, Jones' production, <laughs> um, right. certainly in the end zone. But, you know, it, it's certainly, you know, not abnormal. And I, I don't really think they could fault all the team chemistry on that. Well, it, it isn't. That's interesting to me that, that Brown has gotten most of the blame when there was this rift between him and Roethlisberger. But Roethlisberger hasn't really taken that heat at all. And obviously it was Brown who is no longer with the team. Well, yeah, and the GM of the team said, oh, it's been Roethlisberger and 53 children or something. Yeah. You know, they, they did a lot to push Antonio Brown mm-hmm. out the door and kind of created this whole mess for themselves, which, you know, it's there's an element of schadenfreude, I think, around mm-hmm. the league to see, you know, the Steelers always kind of carry themselves as this franchise that is based around stability, and they're one of the, you know, oldest, most respectable franchises. And so to kind of see this mess unfold and, and then for Brown to leave for, not that much in return, if anything, right. um, was I think the rest of the league sort of got a, um, a kick out of it. Right. Well, and that's so the Steelers only got a third round pick and a fifth round pick. Plus, they're stuck with more than twenty one million dollars in dead money, which I think is an all time record. People were throwing around that that they believe that it was the most dead money for one player in on one, the cap ever. in one season. Yeah, in one I think season. And Dominican Sue's was spread out over two years, I think. Um, so yeah, so that's that seems not great <laughs> for Pittsburgh. How bad was this deal for them? Do you think? Neil? Well, uh, I mean. Given the alternatives, I feel like it was sort of the best that they could do mm-hmm. under the circumstances. And a lot of that was because of Antonio Brown himself. He dictated the terms of this deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved that, you know, most times when people talk about winners and losers and trades uh, in any sport, they talk about Team A and they talk about Team B and they don't really talk about the player. This one forced us to actually say, like, the big winner of this trade was easily Antonio Brown because he got a new contract, he got the money he was looking for, he got the guaranteed money he was looking for, and he was able to dictate where he went. And so you mentioned the Bills. That was a situation where Brown basically was able to pull the plug on that uh, on that deal. Mm-hmm. And so the Steelers had no leverage to be able to sort of negotiate a trade with, um, with the Raiders. And so getting... 
you know, getting a third and fifth round pick out of it actually probably isn't that bad uh, given the, the, the lack of leverage that they had. Tony Brown himself basically orchestrated this whole thing and the Steelers let him do it. And, and one of the reasons why was because they have this policy of front loading these contracts mm-hmm. and, and putting the, the guaranteed money early. Our colleague Bill Barnwell wrote a great piece about this in the wake of the trade. Uh, and, and they restructured Brown's contract because they were like, well, we, we're obviously going to want him around for the next couple of years. So they converted a, a lot of base salary to signing bonus. And that ended up being their undoing here. Right. And the reason why they have that massive um, uh, dead cap number is that when you do that in the NFL, it actually uh, it prorates over the years as long as you have the player on the team. Right. But if you uh, the second that you trade or cut the player, all of that remaining signing bonus money accelerates onto your cap that year. And so he basically played the Steelers game against themselves. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's why they're left with uh, that huge dead cap number. It's especially interesting, I think, coming on the heels of what happened with Le'Veon Bell. The players really are taking the, their careers more into their own hands now. I'm not sure whether that's going to pay off for Bell. It did seem to pay off for Brown here. So Brown is leaving Pittsburgh, where which was second in the league in passing, and he's going to Oakland, which uh, last year finished 18th in passing. Jeff, how will Brown do in Oakland? Can he succeed there? Well, it's certainly a quarterback downgrade. I mean, I think it, for his... <laughs> I'm not the biggest Derek Carr fan. Um, He had a great year. He had one great year. Uh, That was a couple of years ago. (laughs) The quarterback we've seen lately has been, I think, someone who's a little risk adverse, someone who's not great under pressure, someone who who goes with the conservative option and still manages to throw a decent amount of interceptions. Um, Mm -hmm. If you look at Roethlisberger's game, like his, you know, sort of, his trademark play, you know, his ability to extend a play, you know, break break through a sack, um, find a guy roaming around way downfield and, and connecting on it. I mean, that's like ideal for a receiver of, of Brown's skill set. You look at someone, um, I always think of Mike Wallace, who was just unbelievable at Pittsburgh with Roethlisberger. I think he averaged like 20 yards a carry. For like two years, mm-hmm. um, you know, over 1,100 yards on the season. And then, you know, he left Pittsburgh. And we really, I mean, I think he had one okay year in Baltimore, but we really haven't really heard much of him. He looked like one of the best receivers in the league. And, and look what happened. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen to Brown, but I do think when you're acquiring a receiver, I, I always see it as kind of the final piece of the puzzle, not the first piece of the puzzle. If you look at what Dallas did by getting Cooper, from the Raiders, mm, it was kind of like the thing that kind of pushed them into the playoffs. Um, it was it was the piece they were missing to give uh, Prescott another target. But you look at uh, Oakland; they got needs everywhere. I mean, the defense is bad, the offense is bad. They're the <laughs> oldest roster in the league. But how is their special teams play? <laughs> They're like getting rid of Khalil Mack, the best defensive player in football, and then now spending. I, I'm not really sure what they're doing. I feel like it's a major identity crisis. And part of it has to do with this coach, mm-hmm. who obviously is under a tremendous pressure to win, even though, you know, he's also trying to rebuild and the team moving and, and trying to have a winning team whenever they go to Las Vegas. Yeah. And Jeff, you mentioned 
Amari Cooper, um, I think that that's a pretty interesting comparison too because Oakland seems to be sort of the place where receivers' careers kind of go to die in, in some cases. And in his case, he actually kind of rejuvenated himself by leaving. But, I mean, he averaged only 61.2 yards per game uh, in his career with Oakland. Uh, and, and most of that, if not all of that, was with uh, Derek Carr throwing to him. Uh, and only 46.7 yards per game last year. Then he goes to Dallas and averages nearly 81 yards per game, uh, which is a career-high number, uh, and, and also had six receiving touchdowns in nine games. So I think, you know, if you kind of look at Amari Cooper but in reverse, that's the one part of, uh, and I know I said Antonio Brown sort of won the trade and, and got what he wanted out of it. Um, the one part in which maybe he didn't is that now he does have to play for the Raiders right. and he does have to catch balls uh, from Derek Carr. And it uh, the, the Raiders, I mean, people brought up Randy Moss. Uh, obviously, that was a different era uh, of the Raiders, but it does seem like ever since Tim Brown was sort of the mainstay there, they've sort of seen the ends of the careers of some of these guys uh, or, or the low points of the careers of guys like Moss and, and Amari Cooper, and they were some of the last Jerry Rice seasons that were productive <laughs> were there, um, which is a little difficult to remember now. You know, Darius Hayward Bay, they've right. just burned through all of these guys and they really haven't been able to have like a star receiver in a long time. So maybe this changes that. But also, I mean, I think he, uh, one of the things that came up over the weekend was Antonio Brown's fantasy stock dropping uh, because, <laughs> you know, they know just how much of a boost he was getting, like you said, Jeff, in, the, in that Pittsburgh offense. And so it'll be really interesting. I, I love these natural experiments that we sort of take a player who was super productive in one situation and kind of pluck him out of it and put him down into another one. And then we're like, OK. Prove to us how valuable receivers are. Right. And, you know, this will be a good natural experiment in that regard, I think. Yeah. I think the, the, the takeaway for me is that the deal itself was very good for Brown, but his situation might end up getting substantially worse. And it's sort of the inverse for Pittsburgh. They think that their situation will be better, that the drama will be gone, at least for the, for the moment. But the deal itself seems exceedingly bad for, for the Steelers. All right. Well, let's leave that there. And move on to baseball. So it seems right now uh, in baseball, like there are practically no teams that aren't either the super squads or the tankers. One team that seems to occupy that rare place is the New York Mets. Mets GM Brody Van Wagenen thinks the team will be a contender. I think I've set pretty high expectations for what the fans should expect. And you say two days after the World Series, hopefully we will uh, be having a parade in New York City. Neil, you've written about the Mets and their unfortunate timing. They've done enough to improve on last year, but in this division, it still might not be enough for them to win. Is Van Wagen and wrong to be ordering confetti now? <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, anytime you're ordering confetti uh, as GM of the Mets, it's, <laughs> it's a little uh, it's a little bit of a bold statement to make. Um, right now, I mean, the Mets, our model thinks that they are a good team, which I think is interesting. You know, in the wake of the past couple of years, I think they've won 147 games over the past two years. They've been bad. They've been injury riddled. They've had a you know veteran laden bad lineup at various times and and their um, uh, rotation has been shot through with injuries uh, so to see an 85 win projection for them now which is roughly a top 10 team in baseball according to the 538 model 
is sort of a huge improvement. Like in a vacuum, I think we would look at that and be like, you know, the Mets are making strides. They're mm-hmm. they're trying to kind of take advantage uh, of their window of opportunity. Then you look at the other teams in uh, in the National League East, and you look at the Nationals, uh, who have added a number of people and still, uh, you know, to an already strong core that they've had. They've been sort of, you know, the, the projected team to beat for a while in that mm-hmm. division, even if they don't always do it. The Braves won the division last year. They have an amazing, you know, young core of talent led by Ronald Acuna. Uh, and, oh, yeah, the Phillies also added added a bunch of the most coveted people over the offseason, uh, headlined by the Bryce Harper signing uh, a couple weeks ago. So with all that in mind, now the Mets are sort of looking around like, you know, maybe that 85 win projection doesn't look so good uh, relative to everyone else. If they were in another division, I think it would be different. But, you know, sometimes these pockets of competitiveness in divisions open up uh, just sort of organically. And it looks like the NL East is the middle of that. And, and the Mets are not a guaranteed team uh, to rise to the top. We have them at 42 percent to make the playoffs. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is, again, better than they were at last year at any time after like April. Yes, in (laughs) April, those odds looked great. And then after that, it was all downhill. (laughs) Right. Jeff, is this the right strategy for the Mets, uh, giving it a go despite those odds against them? The answer to that question is always no. (laughs) (laughs) Just no matter what the strategy is. (laughs) It's funny, too, because there's this Dodgers blueprint, Astro, you know, like teams that are really going forward, spending money. And then there's obviously the tanking. But then, you know, I think back of a team... You're familiar with, Sarah, the Brewers. They kind of laid down like a little bit of another blueprint last year that we wrote about a few times that they actually went out and surprisingly spent a a decent amount of money last offseason. You know, they got Yelich, Lorenzo Cain, and then they got to the trade deadline and they were competitive and they added a few more. And and look, I I do think it is possible to Mm -hmm. kind of do both. Like, I, I... I think if you have enough, like, core talent, which they do in DeGrom and Syndergaard, I think those two guys, you know, if they're rotation fixtures for a full year, which has not been guaranteed at all, um, then they'll be competitive. And then maybe, I'm granted, I'm being very optimistic here, you know, maybe you hit a couple home runs with these offseason acquisitions or some of these prospects coming up, the Peter Alonzo types. Um, if they, if they're you catch lightning in a bottle, yeah, it's possible. I mean, I wouldn't bet on it, especially in that division. But they, you know, they can't control what division they're in. For them, it, it's reasonable optimism, which we usually have around this time of the year. And usually the only time of the year um, for for optimism among Met fans uh, mm-hmm. in a normal season. But I do think that's an interesting point about the Brewers too, because they were in a division going into the year last year where they were also looking up at the Cubs, and the Cubs were still sort of in the state of resembling the team from 2016, mm-hmm. the, the dominant sort of dynastic looking Cubs. Uh, and so, you know, a reasonable person could have looked at the Brewers and been like, what are you doing? Well, you, you're obviously not going to knock off the Cubs in that division. So why even kind of go for it? Well, guess what? They did. Yeah. Uh, and, and so baseball is kind of a funny sport that they're the error bars around any team's 
uh, projection are wide enough that you could be projected for 85 wins and you could easily win 95 or you could win 75 or even go outside of that um, and it wouldn't raise too many eyebrows. I think the big problem, though, in this particular case is just that numbers game mm-hmm. uh, in the division because, you know, if you're the Brewers last year, you only just have to hope that the Cardinals don't catch you from behind right. and that the, the Cubs, you know, sort of drop off and that you, you know, have – a ver- a, one of the better versions of your season, but here it's like, well, we got to have three other teams, right. you know, sort of falter and not have uh, a horrible injury riddled mess of a season the way that um, the past few have played out for the Mets at the same time. Well, yeah, this might be an easier proposition for a team like, say, the Minnesota Twins, who are ah. <laughs> who only have really one team to catch in the Indians in the AL Central. The White Sox didn't go out and get Machado, and then the Tigers and Royals are terrible. So it'd be easier for the Twins maybe to spend a little bit more now to try to get those extra couple of wins and and take over the Indians. But did the Twins do that over the offseason? Well, (laughs) kind of. And maybe maybe they needed to go a little bit farther, right? They should have maybe been in on the Machado slash Harper sweepstakes to sort of make that happen. I just also feel like the Mets are kind of in a weird situation. San Francisco also falls in this bucket. They can't really just completely tank. I think right. it just it wouldn't work. I mean, I think for one, the Wilpons need like a decent gate. They need people out there, um, you know, filling the seats. And I think the attendance could hit rock bottom if they went full tank. And, and I don't know what that does to them. <laughs> The team's margin lines. Um, but in, you know, San Francisco with a team that has like the best attendance in the league, are you going to really like punt on that? Are you going to risk that and, and, and just completely throw in the towel on a season? Um, so I, I do think like, you know, based on market and, and sort of, you know, mm-hmm. your fan base, it, it's different for every club. Sure. And the Mets also have that young pitching core that maybe won't let them tank quite. I mean, DeGrom was giving it his all last year, and uh, he didn't get the wins, obviously. And they might not have that core that long. Right, yeah. They shopped some of those guys, though. So there was not, uh, you know, there was some universe where they could have found some some deal that traded those guys away, and then that would kind of commence the whole blow-up. But I do think the the part about the market is really interesting because you look at a team like the Cubs, you know, they're sort of the the flagship franchise in the Chicago um, market, and they completely bottomed out and were able to kind of build that World Series team out of the ashes. Is there something to being like the second team in a market that makes it more difficult to do that like if the White Sox their attendance might take a little bit longer sure. to kind of rebound and the Mets are certainly the second team in the New York market uh, far behind the Yankees and so it does sort of you know depend I think on that dynamic and that's sort of interesting too are there certain teams that are sort of just always at a disadvantage because they don't have as many strategic avenues open to them because of their brand and and their status within a a city the one other team in the NL East that is not contending is uh is Miami and they're tanking pretty hard are they doing the right thing should they be trying to compete too in that crowded NL East that's a team that is in perfect position to tank because um, they didn't even have a million fans um attend their games last year i mean like 800 10,000 a game um and that and that could be pretty much expected unless they have like an absolutely elite team and win a third a third world series 
No, I mean, I, I think that ship already sailed a few years ago anyway. Now they are sort of fully committed. They changed owners. You know, Derek Jeter is is sort of the face of that mm-hmm. group down there. And to be honest, they also, you know, got very unlucky. Uh, they had a guy that could potentially have won uh, a Cy Young or two by now and Jose Fernandez, who died right. um, at the end of, I want to say, the 2016 season. And so that loss it compounded with all of the sort of ownership uh, turmoil uh, and everything sort of set them down this path. I would imagine a baseball team is a lot like trying to steer like the Titanic. So once you go down that path, you almost feel like you have to commit to it, even though you're headed right toward the iceberg. I don't know if that <laughs> analogy really works. But. I like it. I like it. So the Mets may not need to perfect their dogpile form quite yet, but I think it's refreshing that they're trying and maybe more teams in baseball should be doing just that. Let's move on to our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, but some don't. We want to end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, the rabbit hole belongs to Neil. So uh, this rabbit hole is a a little bit of a long time coming because uh, it started last year when I just suddenly decided to start watching Formula One (laughs) racing. As one does. As one does. (laughs) So every, you know, about 10 years, I I, I go in, I watch some Formula One, and uh, for some reason, I really got into it, as you could attest uh, mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we actually ended up writing a few stories uh, out of it. Um, we ended up uh, putting together some data sets uh, around it. Uh, Sarah learned a lot about the uh, Formula One deaths I in really the did. 1970s. Very, very upsetting. Very grisly uh, time uh, in everyone's life. And so um, <laughs> now, this weekend, the 2019 Formula One season begins. And so I just thought I would uh, talk about some of the important storylines that are going to come down the, the pipe. For instance, uh, Ferrari made some changes at, at driver. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen, uh, the longtime driver there, former world champion, he's out. Mm. Uh, the young Charles Leclerc is going to take over uh, in, in Ferrari. And so Ferrari was a team that had, they're basically the Yankees of uh, Formula One. They always kind of expect to win. Uh, uh, they're the most well-known team in Formula One, and they put up a good fight early last season, uh, but ultimately they kind of fell apart down the stretch. Sebastian Vettel, who's their former world champion uh, driver, is very upset about losing uh, the world championship to Lewis Hamilton of Mercedes. And so, you know, they're trying to make a comeback. Hamilton obviously is gunning for another world championship, and he's in the mix for, he's rising up the ranks of the greatest drivers of all time. And I don't know where he ranked in our ELO that we did last year maybe you can pretty remember high, Sarah, but I believe, he, he, yeah. was, he was pretty up there I think he was in the top 10 all time and so he's just trying to tack on another championship and obviously you know Formula One is a sport that uh, is is dominated by money and it's dominated by this kind of international elites that that kind of run it and they tried to make some changes to tweak the way that the cars you know, operate on the track, give them more of a chance to overtake because last year we had some races where the literally the winning drivers were like, yeah, that was a really boring race. And, you know, I didn't really find it that exciting. Uh, and so it always has to be that element of possible death involved or else why even bother? Well, the race? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like they're a far cry on the on the safety department than in the 70s, which sure. is a good thing. Yes. And then the other thing was our pick for the greatest driver in Formula One, uh, even though he was not 
winning. Fernando Alonso is actually not in Formula One anymore. He uh, is going to try to drive Indy cars and try to win the fabled triple crown of motorsport racing, which I don't think many people thought was a thing until he tried to win it, uh, <laughs> and it, and it kind of became a, a talking point. So I don't know. Are you guys excited about another season of Formula One racing coming up? Formula One, it's like one of those sports I've always just kind of liked the idea of liking it. <laughs> you know, like that appeals to me, being a Formula, like waking up and watching Formula One. But then, the you know, the practice of that, actually sitting down and watching a race, I just can't even, I'm not, I mean, I'm sort of like that with soccer, too. You know, like I really like talking about soccer, but when it actually, besides for maybe the World Cup, when it comes down to actually watching a soccer game, that is less appealing. I also have an issue with the whole car driver thing, separating those oh, right. two. It's really not about the driver nearly as much as it is about the car, right? Well, I'm not even really sure I know. You know, when does drivers stop and car start? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like I like horse question. racing because, you know, horse racing is like about 90, 90%, 95% horse. The jockeys just kind of can mess it up. But he, he really is, is just there for the ride. Um, but with the Formula One and the Mercedes, McLaren... I don't know. May, I mean, to me, it's a little cryptic. No, I, I think you're right about that, Jeff. And that was one of the things that we struggled with with our ratings. Our first kind of batch that we put out um, gave the driver like all the credit. So, you know, wherever they finish, no matter how strong or weak of a car they have, that sort of gets added to their um, their tally. And a lot of people were like, um, actually, that's uh, kind of a poor way to do things. And, you know, it's a decision that you can kind of make when you're designing things. And so we came back around and the thing that um, rated Alonzo really highly last year, even though he, um, I don't know if he won a race, uh, was that you know, relative to teammates, so trying to account for that, well, the car is, you know, a certain level of power, but if we sort of account for that, take that out of the equation, here's how good the drivers are. And it does see, I mean, it, it's pretty apparent if you look at the the list of who dominates each year and how much money they put in that the car has a huge amount of effect on it uh, and, and that the driver's you know, can make or break at the championship level, but they can't take a truly bad car and elevate it into contention unless they're like Ayrton Senna in the 1980s or something like that. Uh, and so, Jeff, if you want a, a, an auto sport in which um, the uh, the drivers are sort of the differentiating factor and that the cars are not really different from each other, you should watch another series that started, I believe, last weekend, which is the IndyCar series uh, over here in America. I noted that enthusiasm that you have, <laughs> but that's a spec series. Uh, that sounds bad. In which, in which all the cars are sort of mandated to be designed by the same uh, company or same groups of companies. Engines are the same, and uh, they they sort of... Th- any differences are uh, due to, like, strategy and uh, support team and driver uh, skill and things like that, but it's not because of the power of the car, necessarily. Well, I don't think I can watch Formula One this year because my favorite driver is no longer in Formula One. And none that other would be... than Stoffel Van Dorn, oh, Fernando so Alonso's uh, teammate. Well, where, where's Stoffel... Uh, these days, what is he? Formula E. What? That's Formula for the, um, <laughs> no clue. That's for the environmentally conscious uh, <laughs> motorsport fan. 
and those are, I think, they run off of uh, electric uh, power. Good for Stoffel. Good that, for him. Wait, is you know. that a real thing? <laughs> it is a real thing. They have a race in Brooklyn, Jeff. Uh, you, you should you should go out and look at it. Let's go watch Stoffel. We'll watch Stoffel together. Okay, I think we can uh, we can leave that one there. Uh, that will do it for this week's show. Thank you guys so much for joining me on our inaugural podcast. It was a lot of fun. Let's do it again soon. And listeners, this is a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe. And be sure to review and rate the show. It helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you thought of the program. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time. Thank you.